Hello, welcome to the next RevDem episode. My name is Kasia Krzyżanowska. I am the RevDem editor. And our guest today is Professor Bojan Bogaric, who is a professor of law at the Sheffield University. He has published numerous articles on constitutionalism, democracy, and populism, as well as on political economy, especially in Central and Eastern Europe. And just recently, together with Professor Mark Tashnet, he has written a book on constitutionalism after populism, which is about to be published by the Oxford University Press. And we will talk about this book today. Welcome, Boyan. Thank you, Kasia, for this invitation. It's my pleasure. Thank you for accepting this. And let us start with the main claim of your book, because you basically state that some versions of populism are inconsistent with some versions of constitutionalism, but others can fit the constitutional framework perfectly well. And you also add that there is no such thing as populism in general. So the latter claim for many scholars might come as a surprise because many do not agree that we can reconcile anti-pluralism and impatience with institutions that is shared by populists with constitutionalism. So my question to you would be, can we actually plausibly argue that there is such a thing as populist constitutionalism? Uh, thank you for this question. It's, uh, yeah, you're right. This is one of the key um, uh, points uh, uh, of our book. And uh, uh, the answer is yes, of course, there are uh, actually examples of uh, populist constitutionalism uh, but the main reason for, for, for people to be surprised, as you said, about uh, uh, understanding that populism can be reconcilable with constitutionalism because they start with this abstract notion, abstract approach of populism, which is usually described in, in general abstract ways, and then from there apply it to, to, to other examples. So we criticize this uh, idea of populism as such because we argue that there are many different versions of populism. So the most important thing to understand that different versions also uh, have different political and you know, constitutional connotations. And some of them, of course, you know, uh, are anti-institutional and anti-plural, but there are others who, uh, which are, are not. And uh, we talk uh, a lot in the book about those other examples. Um, you know, you look at the, you know, uh, examples of uh, Southern Europe, Syriza and Podemos, or you look at Bernie Sanders, or you can look even at some, you know, more right-wing examples such as uh, Cinque Stelle in Italy. And we look at detail, we try to look at their empirical record and we don't see that they try to undermine institutions or to be anti-pluralist or uh, anti-institutional. So uh, they very clearly show that there are examples, imperfect examples, but good examples of populists who pursue their agenda and yet also uh, respect the bounds of the constitutional bounds of constitutional legal plur uh, constitutional you know, pluralism and, uh, and, uh, uh, and all key liberal tenets of constitutional democracy. I will ask you um, in a more detail about the uh, concrete examples of uh, these populist movements, but I will now ask you another question because among many inspiring claims that your book provide, one about uh, methodology is really interesting because you state and then prove that the scholar uh, do not like uh, populism and this dislike stems from the preconception that academics consciously or not, uh, stick to. 
which these are the preconceptions at which are mirrored in their definitions of populism, for example, uh, as you mentioned, uh, because they frame this populism as anti-democratic or anti-constitutional. So if this is true about legal methodology, what can, can we really perceive law as an objective science? Um, uh, um, law, um, I, you know, I have to go back, far back, you know, to remember when I ended uh, believing that law was some kind of really objective science. But even though if you believe that it's, you know, maybe an approximation of uh, some kind of objective science, we can say that uh, the problem here with many people, you know, the way how they approach populism is that, uh, you know, have a built in their antipathies towards populism in their scholarly approach. So example, so people who are, you know, in the center don't like either left wing or uh, right wing populists because they clearly diverge from their political agenda. If they are left wing, some people then of course favor left wing populism, but not like other forms. In order to try to avoid that, we strongly uh, suggest that you know the social legal route is the best uh, way to go. So we have to study populism in its context. We have to look at the whole. Um, we have to look at the political uh, economic situation. We have to look at the legal institutional part. And then after we see the entire phenomenon in its work, it works. Then in the end we can make a, make a judgment about that. And what we see in scholarship is sometimes the reverse process. So people create an ideal type based on a few examples, and then they apply that ideal type almost indiscriminately to many other examples without studying them in, in the detail. And uh, an interesting example was uh, this uh, brief Italian populist government, you know, the Cinque Stelle together with, the, with Lega, and uh, you know, they didn't do much because they were in power only briefly, but there was a strong attack on all their measures, proposals, simply because, you know, they were disliked because they were populist. In the book, we tried to show that, you know, some of the measures were not that uh, bad and actually not really harmful for constitutional democracy. One would be reducing the size of the Italian parliament, which was one of the largest parliaments in the world. So what is bad about that is our question in the book. Yeah, that's true. And actually, you show very sensibly how many arguments can be so how many um, indeed changes can be argued um, in a way that are not uh, inconsistent with uh, constitutionalism. And one might be also surprised that among the elements of thin constitutionalism that you identified, um, so the thin constitutionalism that uh, is that constitutionalism that nearly everyone would agree on. Among these elements, you do not mention judicial review, but instead only the uh, judicial independence and judicial accountability. So my question would be whether you would also make a case against judicial review as an anti-democratic, unbridled institution that is epistemically superior over other citizens, as uh, recently has really powerfully argued Professor Nicholas Bowie from Harvard. Uh, yeah, also one of the probably most difficult questions in you know, comparative studies of judicial review. Uh, here, probably we have a slightly different views with uh, my co-author, Professor Tashnet. He, you know, he is known for his earlier work, you know, on the, you know, criticizing very strongly judicial review. 
my approach is a little bit more eclectic. So my actually take is that I am, I don't believe that there is a general theory which, you know, explains sufficiently or well, you know, whether judicial view as such, you know, is good or bad. I think we, it depends again, you know, a socio, socio-political context of the situation, you know, maybe in certain countries, you know, the, usually the people who write about it give examples of this, you know, well-functioning democracies in New Zealand, you know, Jeremy Waldron and others. But, you know, uh, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's very important to remember that sometimes it's, it's good to have, you know, courts that can, you know, prevent abusive, abuses of, you know, executive or you know, legislative power. So um, I appreciate, I see the, 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 the extra, extra, excellent quality of the article, but I wouldn't go that far. I think in, uh, in theory is much easier to criticize judicial review. When you look at the judicial review in context, you see that sometimes, you know, there, you can make a relatively strong, reasonable case, you know, that would be good to have, you know, independent courts. You know, think about Eastern Europe. Think about places, regions which are known for producing, you know, intolerance, which are known for producing, you know, certain, you know, deviations from constitutional democracy. And to argue in such context against judicial review, I think would be extremely, you know, you know, counterproductive actually, and would be, you know, harmful for democracy. But I would not exclude, exclude that there are, you know, other parts of the world where people might, you know, live happily in democracy without judicial review. So that's kind of my agnostic. Actually, there was a good piece by Professor Wojciech Sadurski a few years ago where he called this approach um, a context-based approach to, to the judicial review. So tell me the context and I'll tell you the answer. So once again, we should be more sensible to the context as you argued also in your book. Yeah. And, um, what really intrigued me also in your book is how you approach instrumental usage of law by the populists, because you say somewhere in the book that populists have better understanding of law as such, that is as ultimately instrumental. And populists aim at implementing concrete policies that should improve people's life, lives, so that sometimes um, approach the law more creatively, let's say the least, but when outmaneuvering the existing legal framework becomes dangerous, or put it differently, uh, what is the difference between the populists and proto-authoritarians, as you name it, in their approach to law? What kind of methodology shall we apply to discern between those two um, branches? Yeah, this is this is a very good question, and. Uh... And the answer is not a very simple one, but I think that we, I hope that we provide one in the book. And here's basically uh, roughly the idea how to distinguish between these two groups. So um, sometimes, of course, you know, uh, uh, you know, going against the institution is necessary in order to, you know, implement certain, you know, policy agendas, which are, you know, uh, which were um, uh, promised during the the the, the elections. And uh, but the key difference between, you know. Uh, populist constitutionalists, you know, who are also committed to, you know, key tenets of, you know, constitutionalism is that they, uh, you know, aim to change, you know, few things here and there, but they don't intend to completely reverse, you know, the key tenets of constitutional liberal democracy, you know, like we see now in Poland, in Hungary, like I've always seen earlier in some Latin American countries, and so on. So again, examples, uh, you know, uh, 
Greek Syriza government, you know, short-lived for years, was also accused by some scholars as being anti-institutional. But of course, sometimes you have to be anti-institutional. For example, their major concern was the, um, you know, the, the uh, balanced budget fundamentalism, which is enshrined in the European uh, Constitution, fiscal pact, and other instruments. And they wanted to change that. And, but they were not successful because they were alone. You know, they have no allies, no uh, supporters in that fight. Um, and I think that's a you know, very legitimate, a very sort of you know, democratically inspired uh, attempt to you know, reverse the change institution, but very, very different from say approach of uh, you know, um, anti-plural, you know, proto-totalitarian government who basically wants to change almost all institutions. You know, look at the Hungary, you know, they got rid of all no veto gates, all independent institutions which are in charge to monitor the executives. I think that's a huge difference. So, so there's nothing, you know, like, you know, imagine, a, you know, a strong democratic populist government being, you know, elected somewhere with a strong, you know, democratic agenda. You know, there are many things which we build up, you know, in, in the previous 30, 40 years during this sort of age of belief of neoliberalism, which I think went a little bit too far. Uh, another example would be, also, you know, independence of central banks. I'm not arguing against, you know, the independence, but there are different ways how the independence can be structured. And even if you compare the Federal Reserve with the European Central Bank, you see a huge difference. So there are all the authors who think that European Central Bank would need to be, you know, democratized a little bit akin to, you know, along the type of the Federal Reserve. Of course, many people are skeptical about it, but that would be the example that would try to, you know, change, you know, rules a little bit, but not go against, you know, the uh, affront, you know, against the, the, the constitutionalism as a totalitarian government. So I think that's, that's the core, that's the core difference. And, and also, if I, just one more sentence, I think we, the sort of the, the, the frame of debate understanding has become almost that any single change of a little institution is being immediately um, uh, uh, attacked as a sort of a bad populism. That's, that's precisely because we don't distinguish between these different types. So we want to uh, avoid that and want to show that there are tools, that there are ways that we can distinguish between these different types of uh, sort of, you know, changing institution between those who actually are, you know, authoritarian or proto-authoritarian and others who uh, don't have that, uh, that uh, aim or that agenda. I wanted to ask you uh, about one more example that you already uh, that you also discuss in your book. So about Boris Johnson and why he is not a proto-authoritarian. Uh, yeah, we in the book we we spent uh, a little bit less uh, time with 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 the, with the British case, but we mentioned somewhere that uh, he presents an example of, of what we call a borrowing from political science, so-called plutocratic populism. So populist who promise to people but deliver to the rich. And, you know, he's trying to do change things, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, there, you know, he hasn't been, you know, as successful as any other, you know, proto-authoritarians that we're observing around. You know, he tried to uh, prorogue the parliament, you know, the Supreme Court ruled that that was illegal. I uh, you know he's also, you know, unhappy with the media, but there aren't on the, Horizon on any major reforms, proposals that would aim in a similar way uh, as we've seen in Hungary and Poland to try to restructure the constitution. There are certain measures which are, which are worrying, 
but uh, I think for for a variety of reasons, you know, he's uh, he's much more benign in his attempts to to burn these institutions. So that's why uh, we didn't put him uh, in, in, in on the map together with other with other reasons. But I'm not saying that there are not you know, measures which which can be you know very uh, uh, problematic, you know, if implemented in the future. So can we say, based on that, uh, based on what you uh, talked about now and on your book, that populists are stronger in these countries where uh, pro-constitutional culture is weaker? Yeah, that's that's probably one of the, you know, that's probably, you know, the good topic for not only one, but several dissertations, because uh, that's what I generally still think and believe that constitutional culture is very important. So that's also why I think that something that happened in Poland in Hungary was possible also because of you know the weaker constitutional culture because you know it takes time before constitutional democracy becomes you know rooted deeply in the in in in, in the society. Uh, but I don't think that we should take constitutional culture as a single explanatory factor. I mean, there were there have to be other important things, such as, you know, huge crises, you know, crisis of other political parties, of their legitimacy and so on. But of course, you know, the, the, the absence of, of, of strong constitutional, uh, you know, uh, culture uh, importantly contributes to that demise. And, and the counter example would be um, uh, for example, if you look at the, you know, Trump's attempt, you know, to, uh, you know, uh, basically, you know, he, he, you know, the last attempt was, you know, attempt which looks similar, like almost coup d'etat. Uh, but the, the, in the end, it turned out, you know, that media, you know, is too strong in the U.S. for that. You know, there are too many independent media platforms. The judges are also very strong, powerful. Uh, and there are many people, you know, who worked for the electoral commissions and other Know, enforcement agencies who, you know, deeply down were, you know, committed Democrats. So it was very, for him, it was very difficult to do that. On the other hand, you know, you look at the, you know, Turkey and Hungary and other countries and you see that that is of a left lesser issue. But again, I think we should be very, very careful here and very empirical. I'm not even sure, for example, that even Poland and Hungary are exactly the same. So I see more resistance in Poland than in Hungary. So a good empirical question would be why, you know, judges resist more in Poland. You know, so so that's that's uh, again something that needs to be uh, empirically researched. This would actually be my uh, question that I would like to ask out of my personal interest because you seem to uh, organize and systematize different populism in a regional way. So actually, can we say that? populism comes in different regional variants and is there such a thing as central eastern populism european populism yeah i think i think uh, i think that there are there are certainly you know regional flavors to different types of populism so for example you can clearly see that southern european populism had you know different origins and you know was motivated mostly by you know you know economic crisis you know uh, you know you know, there, there was a big unhappiness, you know, with the way the, you know, the, the, the reforms uh, were being done in the years and, and so on. Whereas in, the, in South and Eastern Europe, I think it has much more to do with the, it was a little bit of economy, but it was also a lot of, of, about identity. So it's about, you know, migration, Christianity, 
you know, and, and, and several other things. But then you see also that, you know, other parts of the world replicates certain patterns. So I would, you know, I wouldn't go, I would go, you know, really, you know, completely that far to argue that, you know, these are only regional specific and, you know, completely different for others. But I, I would definitely, uh, uh, definitely agree that, you know, they show certain regional characters, which you know, are distinct from, from, from other parts. So, and also Western European examples are, are, for example, different, but also the difference is that in Western Europe, we've seen only two countries where populists were in power and for a very short period of time, that was Italy and Austria. But, you know, both again, were first they were constrained by a stronger coalitions and their agenda was, you know, I, I, was, I would say, one important difference between Western and, European, and Eastern European populists is their attitudes toward institutions. So Eastern European populists are much more impatient about institutions. That, that's, I think, a, a very important uh, uh, difference between the two models. And uh, just moving to uh, yet another theme, um, recently, Petr Aga, in a conversation with our editor Oliver Garner, criticized the European narrative of anti-populism for marginalizing the critical voices that might be informative about the needed changes, be it in the European project, be it in our domestic politics. Instead, this discourse precludes the academics from approaching the political shifts analytically in, on, in order to understand why some ideas do not enjoy support anymore or at all. And you seem to argue in a similar vein, uh, quoting political scientists Mansbridge and Macedo that essentially say that the core of populism, so this juxtaposition of elite uh, versus us, might be beneficial to the democracy because it takes uh, democratic politics back to its normative roots. And could you provide uh, some positive instances of populist movements of this kind? Yeah, I, I, I agree with uh, I agree with the way that you that you describe this uh, or uh, the argument. So it's uh, uh, you know populists are you know many times actually correct. Their their criticism of you know liberal democracy is is valid. You know as a point, and you know and um, you know uh, upfront attack on all populists. You know. In dangers, you know, it, you know that this message, you know, gets lost, and that's why it's very, very dangerous to put all populists in the same bag because we lose the insights from those who might have something to contribute to, you know, um, a revitalization of democracy, which is in crisis. You know, we see it all around the world. So, um, so, so basically, the, the, yeah, your, your, our core attempt was try to distinguish between, you know, the populists who carry this, you know, important agenda from those who actually use populism for other means, such as, you know, diminishing, you know, the power of the opposition, diminishing the role of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the um, you know, the, the, the referees, you know, the, all the institutions which we have in constitutional democracy, you know, that control, that control the executive power. So, so, so by distinguishing the two, we hope that we would open, you know, the debate, you know, about those positive pro-democratic populist uh, agendas that uh, promise to contribute something positive to constitutionalism. Uh, you know, the, 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 the good question though is, you know, why we see so few of these, you know, positive examples, but, in, and, and some people would uh, respond that that's because, you know, 
populism has this built-in tendency to, gener to degenerate into something negative. I don't agree with that. I think that's, it's not, I think it's exogenous. It's, 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 it's not part of populism per se. So it depends, you know, on the personality, on political leaders. That's why you can have, you know, person like Bernie Sanders as a populist, and you can have also, you know, Marine Le Pen as a populist, you know, very different person, very different beliefs, and with their very different policy agendas. So, and if we don't distinguish them, then we, uh, you know, endanger, you know, this uh, positive aspect of populism, which uh, was described by the work that you, that you cited earlier. But do you agree with Margaret Canovan that populism is somehow inherent to democracy? And democracy, you know, cannot live without that? Um, I mean, if you look, you know, if you look back, you know, after, you know, five or so years of reading all possible literature on populism, you know, of course you see, you know, that it comes in back, it, it, it fades away and it returns back. Uh, whether it's really, you know, kind of a permanent shadow, uh, I'm not so sure. I don't know. I would need kind of probably more kind of, you know, empirical uh, assessment of that. But we can clearly see right now that populism is actually the main challenger to the status quo. It's the only, you know, movement which tries to say that there are other different options, you know. And the problem is, and that's why so many people are skeptical about populism, because it mostly comes on the you know, authoritarian side, you know. On the, on, and so then it's very hard to understand that there can be also, you know, populist, progressive populist, you know, who are Democrats, who want to actually, uh, you know, strengthen constitutional democracy, not, uh, you know, um, uh, undermine it as, as, as authoritarian populists do. So can we basically say that the left-wing populism is less dangerous to the rule of law principles? Uh, not not, not left-wing as such, because we see examples from, from Latin America that, you know, many left-wing populists also end up in the, in the authoritarian, uh, on the authoritarian side. So also I would avoid that kind of a simple conclusion. It's again, you know, uh, you know, depends on many different factors. So th that's another claim that we make in the book. We have to look at the, also the policy agenda, you know, the content of the policy agenda of the populists to make sort of a final judgment whether, you know, what kind of, you know, danger or what kind of uh, threat they present to constitutional democracy. And, uh, uh, you know, and there are many differences, you know, between, you know, people like, you know, Maduro in, in, in Venezuela, who is, you know, uh, you know, complete, you know, pro authoritarian person or, and, you know, uh, people like, uh, you know, you know, the, the, the Southern European examples that I mentioned earlier. So let me move now to the uh, last two points that I wanted to ask you, uh, and they will regard the direct democracy because now they are they seem to be really fashionable. Even the Conference on the Future of Europe tries mm -hmm. to appoint these elements, these instruments. And in your book, you also mentioned some democratic innovations that would give the power to the people. So could you briefly describe each of these institutions that you uh, provide in your book and give some examples of how we could use them? Yeah, that's, that's the last part of the book where we try to make some normative arguments and try to encourage also thinking in the, in the direction of more, uh, you know, um, uh, empowered, as we call it, empowered democracy, more uh, uh, extensive use of this form of, uh, you know, direct representation. So one 
classical example would be referendums, which you know is nothing new. There's also this kind of a you know tendency to be absolutely negative about direct democracy. I remember I attended a conference a few days ago with when you know the best American constitutional scholars, and one of them said, you know, just mention direct democracy among the constitutional law scholars, and you would be you know immediately accused of being basically a populist. So so there is this kind of idea that. Uh, you know, referendums are somehow antithetical, you know, that do not belong to the, you know, pure pluralist constitutional democracy. And, you know, we argue that, you know, there, there are many things that can go wrong with referendums, but that, you know, has to do with the design of the referendums, not, you know, with the idea of referendum of such. Of course, in the past, they were, you know, abused many times, but, you know, any institutions can be abused. So, but there are also referendums that can be, you know, if used properly, can bring, you know, more, uh, you know, enlightened debate, you know, a broader base of opinions together. And for example, we use the example in the book, we use the example of Brexit, which is an example of a bad use of populism because, you know, people did not know precisely what was the real, you know, referendum question. So the, 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 the clarity of the referendum question is a pre requisite in order to have a meaningful referendum. Without that, of course, referendum ends up badly. And that's exactly what happened with Brexit because, you know, even now, you know, the contestation of the result is still ongoing because nobody knows what exactly was the, which form of Brexit, you know, was put forward on, on the ticket. Was it, you know, soft Brexit, hard Brexit and so on. Uh, but, you know, uh, on the, and then, and then, you know, we, we mentioned a little bit, uh, you know, the idea, or the idea of the deliberative pooling, which is, uh, you know, being widely uh, researched by many political scientists and also used around. The idea is very simple, you know, you uh, start with a smaller selection of representatives, you know, of citizens in smaller groups, you engage them in a very uh, intense debates, discussion about different social issues, you frame the, the discussion in a proper way, and then you end up with a very you know, enlightened, deliberate discussion, which produces also good results. And you know, I don't have time to go uh, over that, but there's a, um, in one of the most recent books, Helen Landemore from Yale provides uh, you know, a, a, a long list of examples where this technique you know, can you know, actually you know, not only supplement, but uh, you know, contribute a lot to better you know, representatives in, you know, of, 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 of uh, our constitutional models. So I think these two examples were a little bit more uh, extensively uh, elaborated in the book. Uh, there are more, but uh, I, I want to make another point about that. So by saying that we would like to see more of this, you know, uh, uses of direct democracy, we are not saying that they should always replace representative democracy. Populists are much more pragmatical than usually depicted in the literature. You know, sometimes you know parties and elections are just fine. You know, and you know, and we should respect that. But you know, on the other hand, we should you know use add you know other tools of direct democracy to make the you know the you know openness and transparency of all democratic uh, uh, tools of representation you know more empowered, more representative of the people themselves. But it seems that the EU, which uses the assemblies, uh, is not accused of being uh, too populist, uh, as you were during this conference. That, that, that's a good point, so, yeah, because, uh, again, you know, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was, remember, I, I, um, when, when, when the conference started, I was a little bit uh, surprised about the very low interest among the citizens. 
So again, you know, it's, you know, the, the use of the tool per se does not guarantee necessarily great results. You know, there are many issues which are, again, exogenous to the tools that are important, you know, about the commitment of the leaders and, and, and many other stuff. So I wouldn't want to write off the use of this uh, conference, but uh, um, I'm also I'm not particularly, you know, sort of sure that, you know, it's really going to you know, bring some kind of, you know, huge rethinking of Europe or anything like that. And I wanted to ask you about the limits of these institutions, because you mentioned uh, limitation that comes actually from the elites, and you already uh, mentioned some resistance among the constitutional scholars uh, to the usage of the instruments of direct democracy. And you also discuss in the book uh, some instances of scholars that are very um diminishing the role of the citizens but i wanted to ask you what happens if the people through these mechanisms that you described decide to reduce the substance of some of the democratic rights yeah that's that's probably the that's probably the i i we I, we get often this question when we present our book because i think there are at least two general possible approaches to this question and one is you know we can do Nothing, you know, if people want to elect fascists, you know, that, that's democracy, they'll elect fascists. And then there is other response, you know, that we can build all these legal, complicated, you know, institutions of militant democracy, you know, which might somehow prevent the rise of that. And, uh, and I have to say that, and this is my personal opinion, that I do believe that legal institutions have certain role, you know, especially in the early stages of the rise of authoritarianism. But I do not think that, uh, you know, constitutional courts or I don't know, independent commissions will ever be able to stop authoritarianism. If people decide to elect the authoritarian government, then all these legal institutions, you know, are to no avail. So, so it's a, it's a basically a political question. And uh, and sometimes I'm just surprised that many of our colleagues, you know, legal scholars, you know, put so much energy in looking at the ways how we should prevent with legal institutions to rise, to, to prevent the rise of this outburst of democratic energy, then maybe to try to think why you no know, people in the first place want to vote for these bad guys, because this is not you know, given, you know, it's, it's you know, with, with the you know, changing political agenda, changing, you know, the platform of political parties, we might change it. So there are diff different ways how one can approach that, you know, one was, so let's call it the punitive approach. You're looking the ways how to punish People who vote for populists. The other is, you know, you look at, you know, what you do differently. You know, you look at the, you know, the supply side. You know, what you offer to people instead. And I'm more on this side. You know, so I'm not so sure that, you know, it's always good to look at how to, you know, establish more and more legal institutions to try to prevent that. And let's hope that your book will provide a new um, perspective on those issues and will be used by scholars in the discussions. And here we will end. Thank you very much for this discussion. Thank you for great questions. It was a pleasure. And if you would like to be updated with our podcast and written content, follow the RevDem on Facebook or on Twitter, and also now on Instagram. And subscribe also to the RevDem podcast on Spotify and enjoy more conversations with leading scholars. So thank you, and until the next time. <laughs>